Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. Time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. What a day. What a life. What an experience. I just had a nice little week of travel, some college gigs to do the old comedy, to inspire the hearts and minds of the of the young minds of tomorrow. And let me tell you, inspire I did. I mean, I think it's absolutely outstanding that these fine institutions of higher learning find it fit to have me, a high school dropout with a checkered past, come and talk to their wonderful student bodies. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I actually really enjoy it. Um, And it goes pretty well. But I'm very hard on myself, and so I... You know, I go to these college gigs and pretty much do it alone, and sometimes they're in major cities, but for the most part, they're in college towns, which basically it is a town because there's a there's a college there, and um, sometimes I find myself driving home an hour, sometimes two, to my hotel, which is usually by the airport because I got the travel dialed in for these kinds of things. Now, no disrespect towards these wonderful small towns of Americana, but usually I want to get the fuck out of there as soon as I'm done. I got a kid at home. I can't be, you know, uh, you know, kicking it at the Marriott Courtyard uh, bar at all hours of the night. I got to go home. I got responsibilities. So what I do is I got it dialed in. Let me tell you what I do here, right? I fly in red-eye, get in around 6, 7 a.m. Then I check into my hotel, crash two to four hours of a nap. Because listen, that airplane sleep, it's not good. And I hate to break it to you, but your boy flies business. I- I'm not, I'm not going to hide this, okay? Yes, I'm an everyman. Yes, you can relate to me. But the reality is I fly nice. And why shouldn't I? Right. The reality is, you know, the domestic business class on, you know, I don't know, American Airlines or United, whatever your thing is, you know, it's basically just a bigger seat and a meal that is not the best. Listen to me. Is that the most? I'm so ashamed. What's wrong with me? Right. Somebody's like, oh, really? Your bigger seat isn't nice enough for you. I'm taking fucking last row of Spirit Airline where I got to go. Okay. I gotta, I gotta pay for water. 
So why don't you fucking save it, Josh Peck, in your elitist champagne problem, you know, ways. I know, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I'm, I'm different. I've, I'm different now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't, mean, I don't mean to complain. I got it nice, and I know that, and I'm very lucky. But I fly in, I nap a little bit, maybe I wake up noon, 1 o'clock. Then, you know, maybe I go, I probably go to their, you know, their fitness center. It's probably just like a weight rack and a slightly broken elliptical machine, but I get the gains in. You know, I put in an incredible workout on the road. 45, maybe 50 minutes of cardio, 20, perhaps 30 minutes of weights. It's a well-rounded fitness journey that I take. And what else am I going to do? I'm in Kirksville, Missouri. Or Springfield, Ohio, or just like a, a, a myriad of other, you know, beautiful gems of middle America. And then I get a nice meal. Sometimes, I'll admit it, I yelp. I do yelp. I try to find whatever the hot spot is. And by that, I mean somewhere where Guy Fieri's been. Because if... In an effort to pay for my, you know, son's child care and diapers, I can do a college gig while also eating at a diner with a ridiculously large pancake that Guy Fieri has endorsed. So be it. I'll take that trade anytime. So I go. I enjoy a delicious Guy Fieri approved meal. I get some work done on the computer, perhaps. Maybe I just watch a show or two on the hotel television. I I look at their local stations. I try to see what their local news people look like. I'll be like, oh, Diane, who is a weather person for Channel 7 News in Wichita, she's adorable. And I like the fact that she doesn't, you know... She's not, she doesn't feel pressure to put on too much makeup. She's got a wonderfully natural look, and I think that is fabulous. You know, listen, I'm doing some recon. I want to know what it's like out there, because I'm, you know, you know, you spend too much time in Los Angeles and New York, you start to think that that's the way the world works, but the reality is, this is where the world is happening. These little outposts in, you know, Nebraska or Iowa, or Maryland. I was in Maryland this week, but um, it was all a good time. I, I was in Buffalo doing a college there. Very cold. I'm not built for that level of cold, but Buffaloians, lovely people, very pa- proud of their of their of their you know Buffalo. What would you say? Their 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 allegiance. Their their hometown. A lot of Buffalo pride. I loved it. Had the wings. Wings were good. Wings were good. What can I say? You know? Um, and then I flew. Spent the night in D.C. And then I went to beautiful beautiful Salisbury, Maryland. To Salisbury University. And that was a lovely experience. So, you know, I got it dialed in. And I'm not, I'm not complaining. But I do, you know, these college gigs. I do them and they usually go pretty well. And... And though sometimes I'm, I'm on that hour or two hour plus drive home just contemplating every little word that I said throughout the entire performance. And I'm, I'm you know, it's not, it's, a, it's dark. It's not, it's not me at my best. 
I think you can imagine what that's like. Me in a rented Chevy Malibu, you know, driving on one of our beautiful interstates, contemplating my life and how I still need the approval of even a, you know, a 18 year old kid who's a communications major. And, um, and that's my, you know, this is my, that's my truth. That's the, my reality in life. And, uh, I'm working on it and progress is slow. So, yeah. (laughs) But the reality is I go back to the hotel I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't do anything to create more wreckage. I don't go out to the bars with the students to do something that will 100% get me canceled. No. Go back to the hotel. I prepare my things so that I can leave bright and early. Get a couple hours of sleep. Get on that flight. Wake up. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm on my way home to see my kid. I got no complaints. On today's show, Pete Berg, man, I got to tell you guys, I didn't know what to expect in meeting him and my expectations were exceeded tenfold. I mean, I was initially introduced to Pete as an actor and uh, I, you know, I was was a big fan of his, one of his greatest performances. I didn't bring this up when we met, Corky Romano, fucking revelatory, so good. And then he makes a transition to directing and he's an even better director than he is an actor. It's not fair. I mean, when's that going to happen for me? Anyway, uh, I you know, this is one of those beautiful podcast moments where I just, you know, I slid into his DMs with no expectations, hoping that he would agree to do the pod. And he wrote me back, said, I'm down. Come by my production office. I went there. We had a great time. I was offered many beverages, hot, cold, and even room temp waters. I mean, that's that's my signpost for success. When you've got multiple beverages at your place of work, you're doing fine. You have a lot to be proud of. Um, we talked about his new movie that's dropping on Netflix March 6th called Spencer Confidential, which, ah, listen, your boy got a bit of, uh, you know, an early viewing of. Netflix was nice enough to open up the vaults, you know, and let me watch the movie. And no bullshit, guys. I loved it. It was reminiscent of the movies I grew up on in the 90s. I thought of like bad boys when watching it and just like those hard-hitting action comedies that like don't skimp on either one like incredible exciting fast-paced fighting action scenes with also just like some hilarious bits and really good comedy in between Alan Arkin's in it come on Mark Wahlberg god Mark Wahlberg man what when does this guy rest so so prolific this guy, he's very... Mark, if you ever want to come on the pod, I realize you probably don't want to, but, you know, I got to try. I don't blame you. Um, anyway, guys, Spencer Confidential comes out March 6th on Netflix. You're going to love it. I loved it. And I love this conversation with my guy, Pete Berg. Enjoy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
I, I have full faith. It's so cool because I live a few blocks away. Oh, you do? And I always wondered, what's in, what's in this random warehouse park? Now you know. Yeah, it's your office. Yes. You're a, you're a big boxer, yeah? I'm a big boxing fan. Mm. I, I own a boxing gym called Churchill Boxing um, about a mile away from here. Um, yeah. Um, it's always been a passion of mine, like... I don't know, like 10 years ago, I was thinking about maybe going in on a bar or restaurant or doing something like that with some friends. Mm. And I pretty much figured if I did that, I would just make bad choices every night. But I I love boxing and I like exercise. So I figure if I did a boxing gym, I would have to do something remotely healthy every day, which is how it started. And then it turned into much more of like a real gym than I ever thought. And like, I don't know how much you know about boxing, but... Big fan. Like, well, every, every, uh, pretty much every city in the world has a couple of old school boxing gyms. Sure. And LA's had one for a long time, Wildcard, which is Freddie Roach's gym in Hollywood. And it's disgusting. But they're all disgusting, but they're, fair, be- they're beautifully disgusting. You fair. know, like, like it's, it's, a, it's an acquired taste, a boxing gym. But what they are... In addition to having blood and sweat and vomit and other fluids all over the floor, which you try and steam clean, but you can never entirely clean, they're kind of these like living um, monuments mm. and living historical pieces to not just the history of boxing, but the history of, and of, of the city, the history of the um, of the of the state that the gyms are in. They're they're almost like um, I don't know museums to me, and I wanted to do that in LA. You know, Freddie's a friend of mine. Yeah. And I said to him that like, and we were originally called Wildcard West. We, so if, what Freddie was Wildcard and he was nice enough to let me call my gym Wildcard West to kind of get it going and give it credibility. But the goal is kind of, you know, in a world in which like every day there's a new bio, a new exercise, like fat of some sort, right? Yeah, like soul cycle. CrossFit. CrossFit. Your, your boy Wahlberg with F45. F45, Big. there's boot camp. And well, I think Orange Theory, I don't know if that's still that's going. That's a thing. You know, I wanted to do something that was just more classic, and our gym is just like old school boxing gym. And I found that there's a whole, there's a there's a market, there's people out there that want just something very traditional and get the best workout of, of their lives. We have professional fighters, yeah. housewives, kids, movie stars, rappers, uh, this whole uh, crazy eclectic group of people that all come into our gym and work out, and it's kind of become a passion of mine. I'm fascinated by people like you who are so prolific, like your workload perhaps could break another person because you're just churning out stuff, and I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who find some sort of relief from that grind. Mm-hmm. And so is boxing that for you? Is it sort of like a meditative type thing? What yeah, is for it? sure. Like... Um, like I do work hard and you know, I've been fortunate and have a I have a good career and I'm able to make, you know, movies and T V shows and documentaries and all that. Um and at first when I first you know, when you when you first start on this business, it's like you'll do anything. Anything. Because yes. everyone's just saying no to you all the time, right? You know this. So Of course. You know, you they're just, still saying no people. Well, no. <laughs> okay. well, hopefully not as much. But, but um you know, you reach a point where when the yeses start coming, you just say yes to everything that they say yes to because you're so used to hearing no. Mm. So for a long time, I would just, you know, pile work on myself. And I have a pretty good, 
capacity for for work and I have a I have a lot of bandwidth for it. But I pretty quickly realized that like if there isn't balance, some kind of balance in your life, there's burnout and the joy can can go and then it's not, it's not fun. Mm. So I I try very hard to find things to balance, you know, like I'm either either working or working out yeah. or traveling. I like to travel a lot for fun. Um and I, I figured that, that that rhythm and that sort of combination of work, film work, and then other things that, that balance me out, that put me into a meditative state. I'm a big yoga fan. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of yoga. I do a lot of meditation. Boxing for me is a moving meditation. Um, and, and I do that to try and keep myself energized for, for the film work. Is there... You know, it, it it's fascinating because you've sort of lived in all these worlds and, and you write as well. And I remember, I think it was someone told me about being in the South Park writer's room and that Trey Parker, whenever they've hit a wall and they just can't crack a story, he'll say, go home, uh, watch three movies, go fill the tank, go fill the tank yeah, and we'll yeah, reconvene. Yeah. So when you have, when you're working as much as you are, is there a time where you're like, I got to go live? And yeah. remember what that's like yes, for a second. Absolutely. I mean, um, shutting it down. You know, Charles Bukowski talked about how how he would like <clears throat> go check himself into a hotel in San Pedro for a week yeah. with just a bunch of whiskey, uh, a couple of hookers, a bunch of drugs, and some food. Oh, and he yeah. would stay in that room. No, I, I'm not. I'm not like condoning that behavior. That's a San Pedro day spa. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, like that was a. We could probably open that spa and make a lot of money. I mean, um, Bukowski talked about recharging the batteries. Now he had his own way of doing it. Sure, but I think um, it's critical to to stop and um, to find um, the space and the silence. And to and that's why I say like for me the boxing gym can be that like here in this office this is all you know film television it's a very Hollywood mm. environment if you go a mile down you'll meet people you know especially in L A where it's so hard to have any kind of truly authentic diverse cultural experience sure my gym is full of Russians Japanese Hispanics African Americans straight gay billionaires cops every assortment of human being you and you go down there and it's like completely disengaging from detaching from um the work and i can go down there and i can escape and i can turn myself off um same with travel you know like um, i'm a firm believer in i just did a road trip from Dallas to Houston to Austin with a friend, just driving really? and listening to music and talking and and like laughing, you know, and eating uh, McDonald's and like having a really just good mind clearing experience. What's your McDonald's order? Um, two Big Macs, large fries, and a chocolate milkshake. What are you trying to prove, Pete? Two <laughs> Big Macs. Two Big Macs. That's all you eat for the day, though. You can't crush all that and then have dinner. Okay, so the truth is, I don't get through the second Big Mac usually. Fair. I'll eat the first Big Mac pretty much on one bite. Yeah. I'll take a bite of the second one, throw it out, eat about five fries, drink half the shake, and throw it out. I can't do it all. But, like, my last meal, death row, Big Macs. That's it. Solid. That would be my last meal. What would your last meal be? So it's hard. I've actually studied last meals. Do Have you, you? Do you know what the number one last Pizza, meal? I heard. I heard it's chicken fried steak. 
But right? maybe that was just because I think I just checked Texas where they kill the most people. <laughs> <laughs> I heard pizza, but mm. I heard Domino's pizza. But I don't remember where I heard it. Really? I what, heard. What would you go with? It's tough. Well, the way I've always wanted to die, if I had to die, was to overdose at a White Castle. Hear me out. Okay. <laughs> so I'm my, not going to. My gonna... mom would approve of that. Thank you. I, I'm, I, I just. But I'm... do you mean like take a bunch of drugs at a White Castle or do you mean overdose on White Castle? <laughs> no, like have the heroin needle in my arm uh-huh. with like a triple dose. Okay. Push the plunger down, take and a bite of a slider. A slider. And it slides like it. out. Right? Um, I like I, it. <laughs> well, I, that'd be a twisted reality show. I, I had heard that someone once who was on the electric chair, and rumor has it that you tend to defecate yourself sure once you it's do. over. His last meal was 24 hard-boiled eggs. Was that what Cool Hand Luke ate? Is it, was it? Remember Paul Newman and, and Cool Hand sure. Luke said, I can eat 24 eggs? He said he said he could eat a very high number of eggs. I think it was more than twenty four, but that would be kind of badass if a guy's like uh, pulled a cool hand, Luke. Yes, on on uh, on, the, in, you know, on death row, but I don't know, man. Death I, row, death row is heavy. I think that my suspicion is it was the final fuck you to the guards, knowing that they would have to clean. Oh, up. oh, knowing. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, wow, right. I never thought about that. Right. Right. That's I'm gonna dark. eat I'm gonna eat the nastiest thing that I can shit out of my ass that you're gonna have to clean up. Wow. Slightly genius. Wow. Wow. A lot of free time to brainstorm how to upset the security guards. I wonder if that's true. That'd be, a, that'd be a movie. Yeah. That could actually be a movie. So you grew up in New York? I grew up I was born in Manhattan. I was raised in uh, area called, a town called Chappaqua in Westchester. Mm. Went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota, and moved to L.A. Uh, about 26 years ago. And now I live um, L.A. and New York, where you know I still consider New York to be my home. And you went to, did you go to like one of those fancy boarding schools? I did. I went to the Taft School in Watertown, Connecticut, um, which is a pretty, pretty fancy East Coast prep school. Yeah. Um, did not like it, <clears throat> did not do particularly well there. <clears throat> and at the time I hated it, but I realized <clears throat> it actually was, um, my parents didn't want me around because I was kind of a troublemaker. Mm. So the truth is it was a fancy East Coast prep school if you really want to look at it. But the reality is it that school took anyone. Mm. So like it, in, the, in the hierarchy of fancy prep schools, we were the lowest. So I thought much, Choate was the lowest. No, Choate was above us. Okay. Choate was above, Choate was above us, but then like, like 30 students got arrested in a cocaine ring when I was there, and that kind of dropped them down close to where, where we were. Um, but, you know, that, it's like a kind of a misconception that these schools are like, so they, they are, I mean, they're, they're very expensive now. Back then, they weren't as expensive, but they were really a place where parents that, you know, if, if you were a pain in the ass, but you weren't like a criminal. You know, I wasn't a juvenile delinquent, but I was problematic for my parents. I was sure. defiant and kind of rowdy and um, just, I was a pain in the ass to my parents. So they took me out there and, and sent me there and I didn't really like it. I wanted to be with my friends back at Horace Greeley High School in Chappaqua, the public school where all my friends went. My parents sent me to Taft. I hated it, but what what it did was 
in a good way, it severed the tie of dependence that I had on my parents at a much earlier age than I think some do. You know, so I was in ninth grade. Sure. And I was kind of on my own. And I had to figure things out. And I wasn't entirely equipped. I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't from that kind of East Coast boarding school culture. I didn't know those kinds of kids. I, I, my best friend was Tom Scarola, whose mother ran the school store, and, and he was a criminal. He used to carry a gun to school. Shout out Tom. Yeah, he was a good dude. I don't know if he's still alive. But he was my, my, my parents sent me there thinking I'd make friends with, you know, future world leaders and bank, yeah, bankers. Yeah, Kennedy. And, yeah, maybe. Well, we didn't have any Kennedys, but maybe sure. like a Morgan Stanley hedge fund guy eventually. And I was best friends with Tom Scarola, and, and, and they knew he carried a gun. Great. Um, and like the low level drug dealer and he was my guy and um it all seemed at the time to be like a train wreck mm. but it actually prepared me um to kind of come to LA eventually and be very self-reliant and resourceful and kind of figure things out on my own which I don't know I would that would have done had I not gone to that school I'm sorry to jump around, but it, it occurs to me when you talk about that, like, do you think that you have such a good working and, and I would imagine personal relationship with Wahlberg? Because it seems like you both are like incredibly successful, prolific guys who have a reverence for like home, for like the, the knuckleheads, for like the real salt of the earth people, for, you know, to go back to like the roots. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that we both like... You know, I, Mark and I get along for a variety of reasons. Mm. You know, I think work ethic. Um, and it's it's not just that we like to work hard. We both kind of like to work smart. We don't like to waste time. Like when we did our first film, Lone Survivor, together, we didn't really know each other that well. We met socially, but we weren't friends. Mm. And what really kind of st um, started to, to bond us was I, you know, I tend to not waste a lot of time on film sets. I, I, I like kind of like to think that I know what I want. I get it and I move on. I don't sit around and I'm, I don't like to talk about it too much. I don't like to spend 14 hours on a film set. I don't, I'm, I, I find that to be somewhat indulgent behavior. Yeah. Mark's the same way. So he really liked the pace and the style that I worked with. And similarly with Mark, he'll like, Mark, Mark will work for 20 hours if there's a reason. If there's not a reason, he's like, dude, I'm out. Don't waste my time, you know? And, yeah. um, so we, I think, bonded over that. And, and then, you know, both of us have, yeah, like you say, I think an affinity for the proletarian working class of America. You know, we, we both tend to like um, the idea of stories that focus around, you know, n normal, whatever that means, folks in extraordinary circumstances. So, you know, young Navy SEALs in a horrific gunfight in Afghanistan, uh, um, oil workers dealing with a, a, a very violent explosion in the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. Um, Patriots the, first, Day. the first responders, just, you know, very hardworking, simple EMTs and firefighters and cops and um, emergency room personnel who were not in any way prepared for the kind of carnage they saw during the Boston Marathon. And these people were just, without any warning, the SEALs are maybe a little bit more, you know, SEALs in theory trained for this, but they weren't prepared for what happened, um, you know, in that particular event, Operation Red Wing. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of stories about just, you know, normal people who, you know, suddenly are, are asked to do very extraordinary things and how that kind of plays out. 
Um, and Mark is, you know, fundamentally a very just normal guy who grew up, grew up very, very working class um, in, in uh, Boston. And so, yeah, we both have an affinity for these kinds of stories. I remember, you know, the actor James Ransone? No. You, you know, he played Ziggy on The Wire. Great oh, yes, actor. yes, yes, I do. Great I do. actor. Yeah. And worked, I think, now with Mark twice. And he said, you know, and, and I thought this was really illuminating. He said, the thing about Mark is that he's such a quiet alpha. Uh-huh. And that he leads without any sort of pushing or feeling the need to, like, exercise his authority. And he said, you know, it's it's the betas that give alphas a bad name. Yeah. Because they're like the cucks who feel the need to kind of puff up yeah. and bloviate and show off. He's yeah. like, the alphas lead without any kind of arrogance Yeah, to that's them. very true with Mark. And you know, he's very quiet. He conserves his energy. Mm. Um, you know, Mark and I communicate like with our eyes. Like if he's pissed off, I can tell in his eyes. If I'm pissed off at him, he can tell in my eyes. If I sense that that um, <clears throat> he's, if I sense that there's more he can give, it can just be a look. And he might not like in that moment. He'll respect me because I'm not trying to front on him. Mm. I'm not trying to step on him. Um, and when people do get in his face, it it never goes well for them. Like people f- try and step up on Mark, um, you know. Mar- Mark, <clears throat> Mark is a you know legitimate hard motherfucker. You know, he's not 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 a fake hard guy. Like yeah. you know, he he's an actor, and people tend to think that you know, well, actors are playing. You know, I've seen, <clears throat> I've seen, I, I've I've seen violent people in my life and I've seen people that are legitimate alphas and spent a lot of time with police and with Navy SEALs and with, you know, guys who are legitimately capable of violence. Mark is that kind of a guy. Mm. And as a result, the, the, the demeanor is, is very calm, is very flat, but behind the eyes, um, he's someone that has to be watched. Yeah. <laughs> That's unbelievable. But I've never, that being said, like, Mark is, I've rarely seen him lose his composure, and I've worked with him a lot. I mean, maybe once. One time he lost his composure in me, and it was my fault. And at the end of it, I almost blew him up on on Lone Survivor. We we had to do the scene where it was a shot of him, and and he was talking to a guy, and then the wall just had to explode behind him. So we had like a, a bomb in this wall. Yeah. And he knew that like there was gonna be a countdown, three, two, one. But the scene called for him to just be talking with his eyes open normally, and then out of nowhere this wall explodes. So it'll go three, two, one, and and the bomb would go, but he was anticipating a little bit. So he was flinching. Of understandably. Understandably. Because <laughs> he knew this whole wall was about to blow up. And I was like, I was like, fuck, all right. I told the first idea, I go, okay, just go on two. Yeah. He goes, What do you mean? I go, just blow on two. We'll go three and three. To blow, I said, blow the wall on two. And we also like shoot, we have these kind of mortar guns that shoot debris, but they have to shoot in front of the camera and it makes it look like, you know, there's an explosion happening all around. Right. I told the guys with the mortar gun to aim it a little bit closer to his head, just mm-hmm. a little bit. I said, keep it safe, but aim a little bit closer. And what's in the gun? Is it like dried, dusty particles? Yes. But, but not like there's little pellets and shit in there. It's not, you don't want to get hit by this stuff, right? Right. So the first day when the set was packed, there were a bunch of guests on the set that day, and, and you know we just wanted to get the shot. 
And the, my friend, Eric Heffron, the first day, he's like, you sure you want to do this? I go, it's fine, it's fine. We're going to go in two. So we got out, because we tried it three times before and it kept flinching, right? How many so times we, can you rebuild the wall, you know? Well, we could have <laughs> a lot. But sure. we, we, fair point. Like, it was getting old. Nobody, we wanted to get the shot. Yes. And so Mark's there, and I'm like, all right, Mark, let's go. You ready? He goes, I'm ready. And we go, and three, two, until we blow it, okay? The guy's, sh so he freaks out, because it went on two. And then the guys shot the debris, but they hit him in the face. Uh. And you can see it. And it's literally like getting punched in the face. So he, it went on two. The explosion freaked him out. And then it was like he got punched in the face and all this shit got in his eye, right? And he starts screaming at the effects guys. Like, I mean, he loses it. And I come up. I go, no, this is on me. I says, on me. If you want to hit somebody, hit me. I says, all my fault. Yes. And he's staring at me. And I'm ready for him to hit me, right? Really fucking hit me. And he's staring at me. And I can see him just trying to control himself. I'm like, Mark, I told everyone to do it. It's my fault. And he looks at me and he walks out of the set. And he goes over to his trailer. And he's been the medic's going to rinse his eyes out. And I, I wait like 20 minutes for him to calm down. And this guy's like, this guy Rasta who works with him is like, not yet. Yeah. I wait another 20 minutes. Rasta's like going. And I go in there. Mark's sitting in there by himself. And I just walk in. I go, I go, dude, I am so sorry. I, I fucked up. It was all on me. I'm sorry. It was a bad idea. I'm just thankful you're not hurt. And, and I, I, all I can say, and he looks at me and he goes, you know, I'm just so embarrassed that I lost my temper in front of the crew. Mm. I'm so embarrassed. And I'm like, dude, like, like, and, like, and that was like the most telling. And that was the only time I ever saw him lose his temper and like completely justified. Yeah. And then his only concern was that he had upset the crew or he had been seen as someone that had lost control of his temper. Most importantly, was that the take you used? Fuck yeah. Fuck and yeah. So, and so like, I did, I did, as he stormed out, I did two things. I, I'm like, does anybody, if anybody recorded that right now, give me the cameras, because I don't want that getting out. Yeah. And then I went over to the playback guy. Before I went and talked to Mark, I go, show me the shot. Yeah. If you look at the shot, watch Lone Survivor. It's at the end of the film when he's in the village and he's talking to the um, Afghan that rescues him. You see the shot. Yeah. It's in the film. And I go, show me the shot. And then I did, good question. That's a good question. And, and uh, I did say at the end of the trailer to Mark, I go, the shot is sick. Oh, man. When it comes to that, and I, I've been in that position in, in less of an extreme version, when the shot works, you could be as pissed as you want, but you watch that back of Video Village, you're like, oh. No, yeah. Because no, it lives forever. Yeah, it lives forever, but but like you can't mess with people's safety like that. And yes. Like, um, there's ways of getting that shot without actually shooting that de debris in the eye. So I would never do that again. Mm. And if there's any young filmmakers listening, I don't like... Don't do that shit. Like, yeah. be a filmmaker. Figure out another way because, especially when you're dealing with the eyes, you know, like I, that that stuff was going in his eyes at a very high rate, and it easily could have hurt him. So, yes, the shot's awesome, and I checked it <laughs> before I went to his trailer. I did check the shot. Of course, um, and it was a great shot. Do you? So, to your point about how you can just look in Mark's eyes and convey what you're feeling. What is, cause you're an actor as well. What's your process working with actors? So I learned, I kind of learned, um, 
my my directing style when I was on a TV show, Chicago Hope, back in the '90s. You know, and like back then, you know, we were we we came on every Thursday night at 10 o'clock opposite a show called ER. Sure. Right. At 10 o'clock, it was. Um, uh, we were CBS, they were NBC. Every night they came in first, we came in second. They would come in first with 39 million viewers. We would come in second with 32 million viewers. And everyone was furious. Yeah. Right? That was bad. Those numbers were bad. 32 million viewers, right? Basically. And we would do 26 episodes a season, right? So nowadays, like, TV shows are like, you know, eight episodes of succession. And, right. like... Back then, we were doing 26 episodes, and those were eight days per episode, one after the next, one after the next, one after the next, and that we would have um, 26 different directors. So I get to watch, you know, every year, 26 different directors, and there'd be some overlap, but basically I got to have a front row seat to all these different directing styles, and most of the directors were really frustrating because they were either older directors who had wanted to be Marty Scorsese or Steven Spielberg and have these big careers, but it didn't work out. Now they were directing, you know, an episode of Chicago Hope and they were determined to show that they still had it. Yeah. And they would like use the actors as props and design these massive shots that would take two hours to set up. And then we get like two quick takes to say our lines and, you know, and they, and they, they would shoot for 16 or 17 hours and it was just this horribly stifling environment. They were bad. The worst directors were the, we, they would hire like three or four recent film school graduates. So these like USC, UF, AFI, UCLA, NYU, these kids would come on and they wanted to prove that they were the future Spielbergs, right? So they'd have their shot lists and their uh. viewfinders and, and we would just be like, this is just awful. And it would, the actors like, um, uh, Mandy Patankin and um, Christine uh, Christine Lottie and um, Adam Markin and Thomas Gibson, Hector Alessandro. It was a great cast. We would just sit there and we would be go crazy because, you know, we'd be shooting 18-hour days. We knew they were going to throw away 90% of it. And so when I started directing, um, and I think like one of my favorite early directors was John Cassavetes and m movies like uh, Woman Under the Influence, really I just liked because they felt so and, and even some of Woody Allen stuff I liked a lot it just felt so wild and unplanned mm. and improvisational and almost accidental and that became my approach so that I wanted my, my style to be very actor friendly very crew not so friendly meaning I don't want to spend six hours with these building these crazy contraptions and ridiculous rigs and over lighting so that the actor gets then you know, the short change gets the short end, end of the stick and is like, okay, we're going we're gonna to light for four hours. Okay, go. You've got three takes. I want it to be the opposite. I want the actors to control it and the crew to work around the actors. Yeah. So as a result, if we're filming, like right now we're sitting in a conference room, you know, chairs and couches and stuff. And if you, if you and another actor are going to do a scene, I would bring you in. I would say, what do you want to do? You know, move around, play around. Go over there, go over there. You want to go outside of the room? You want to go outside? Let's talk about it. You want to change lines? Okay, try it. Yeah. You want, you, I give, give the actors as much freedom as they can. And then, Mike, I, I found a crew that generally, that generally um, favors handheld cameras because you want to be nimble. You want to be able to move quickly. 
But I found a crew who could be reactive to that. So we move at a very fast kind of wild pace, my films. And even even the big, you know, sometimes if you're doing really dangerous stunts or complex stunts, you're you're forced, you know, into more traditional storyboard. Um, well, storyboard or previs, or you just you just can't. You, you, you can't just wing it, you know, if you sure. want certain effect shots to look good. But for particularly for acting, for dramatic scenes, when it's just a bunch of actors doing their thing, I let them do their thing. And I focus more on trying to foster an improvisational spirit from my actors than I do about trying to be a control freak and, and manage every moment because that's what I experienced, you know, as a younger actor in Chicago Hope, and I hated it. What do you, I, I remember I, I asked Vincent D'Onofrio this about like, what does he think it is when a scene isn't working on the day? And he said, it's either something in the script, some something that the writer missed or the blocking's wrong. And would you like, what would you say is on the day when you've watched the first three takes and something's off where you're like, I got to look here first if it's not working. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, um, I've found that like, an actor just sucks. Really? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, that's our worst know, fear. Huh? Like, and speaking as an actor, you're oh, always no, like... It's true. Like, especially yeah. if, if you've got a scene where, um, you know, you've got a couple of your, your main actors and you know, but you've got to have a few day players mm. um, and they just suck. Right. You know, or or for, for whatever reason, you know, I, that I've encountered a lot, you know, that a day player, an actor that you didn't really vet that well is just not able to keep up they're trying to do shakespeare with their two lines well, or they're panicked or they're frozen or they're just you know for whatever reason there, there is a skill to being a good actor sure and some people don't have that skill and sometimes those people end up in a scene and that's but as you know especially on your you did tv for so many years it's like walking into someone else's house with two lines against like mark Wahlberg, sure and, will smith or so, charlie's theron but oh. but i've seen people fail miserably at it and i've seen people you know, I've got a film coming out, um, uh, Spencer Confidential, next week with Mark. And there's a scene where this guy, we did a quick scene where this guy, uh, I wanted to have a scene where two cops come to his door. And, and one cop is Bokeem Woodbine, uh, who's, you know, an established actor, who's really good. But I want him to have a backup. And they're kind of intimidating Mark. Yeah, great I, scene. Great and, scene. Well, and I called, you saw it? So yeah, you, I watched so the movie. The, the other guy, not Bokeem. He's excellent. Dude, that guy... I called extras casting. I said, send me a tough guy. Yeah. And this guy shows up. He doesn't say a word. I'm like, I introduce. He has no interest in me or Mark or anyone. He's just standing there. Kills it. Killed it. Fucking kills it. Like, we're all sitting there. Like, Wahlberg's like, who is this guy? Like, the guy finishes. I'm like, man, who are you? He's like, Tom. I go, thank you. He goes, anything else? I'm like, no. He goes, all right, have a nice day. And he leaves. Awesome. And like, in his wardrobe, just drove off. <laughs> I think we took his wardrobe. Sure. But like that kind of thing happens or you get, yes. I mean, sometimes you get a day player who's, you know, this is a huge break for them and they've overthought it and they've over, you know, planned it and they're too, but, but it's, that's one. Um, I'm thinking about what Vince said, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, if, if, if the scene isn't working and it's a script issue, you know, I like to be able to fix it on the spot and be mm. like, okay, say this, try saying that, do this, do that, fix it that way. Um, um, you know, and sometimes though, I find that a scene might not feel like, you know, sometimes actors, 
an actor's reality as to why a scene's not working versus the reality. It's not like, okay, like, um, did you watch the Tyson Fury fight? Yeah. Okay. It, that fight did not work for Deontay Wilder. That's a fact, okay? Bad. Like Bad Deontay, cornering, too. Well, I'm just saying, Deontay Wilder might, if you talked to him middle of the fourth round and said, how's it going? He just said bad. Bad. And he's right, it was going bad. I've been on sets where you might, you know, be in the middle of doing a scene and, and I might come up to you and go, how are you feeling? You go, it's just, I'm not feeling it. It's not working. But it actually is working or it actually is going to cut together. It's... It's it's a you know it's an opinion that an actor might have because he's not thinking clearly he's distracted his mind is preoccupied on something else so he may think it's not going well but I don't think that watching it or I'm thinking ahead about how I'm going to cut it and what really matters mm. and and you know and and so I don't know for me the the biggest problem the the one insurmountable problem I've I've encountered is just a really bad actor. You know, if an actor can't hold it, I, then I worry that I'm not going to be able to fix the scene. And that that's happened. But I was so fascinated, too, especially in your new movie, Spencer Confidential. You know, the the opening big scene is with a pretty new actor, Post Malone. Post Malone, yeah. And he, he's excellent in it. And while I have no doubt that he's good, because I've met him before, and he's just got such a natural, great vibe about him, I'm sure because of your your aptitude as a director, you were massaging some things. And, you know, it, it takes someone of your, like, I always like to say, we get by with a little help from our friends. Yeah. And sometimes, like, I've been saved by a director who I know in the edit was like, if I cut off the top and I cut off the end, yeah. this chunk right here is going to make them look good. Yeah, that's true. And, like, when I, if, I, if I'm dealing with an actor that thinks really struggling – like I'm not, I'll give line readings, I'll whisper right next to his ear, I'll do anything I can mm. to try and just figure like we have enough to give an editor so that we can salvage this. And in case of Post Malone, like I barely knew who Post Malone was. He was friends of Mark. Mark was like, we should hire him. Like my son went crazy. Sure. And I was like, okay, okay. Well, and then he showed up. I was very skeptical. You know, I went to the dressing room before and he was he was kind of learning his lines and he had a lot of lines. I was kind of looking at Mark with that look, like, like, what are we doing here? And yeah. Mark was like, I got this. Because this was on Mark. Mark, Mark. Mark vouched for Post and Mark brought Post. Post showed up on that set and he was he had his lines down. He was in a flow. He was playing. Mm. He was loose. I, I had to do very little with him, surprisingly little. Like, I was prepared to do what you were saying. I was prepared mm. to pull a performance out of him. Um, you know, by any means necessary. He's actually a very, very charismatic guy. And he's like, you know, every once in a while you see musicians who seem to effortlessly be able to, like, I remember the first time I saw Dwight Yoakam, the country singer act. I'm like, like damn, that guy can act. Yeah. Um, um, Tim McGraw, I, I've directed, you know, very, just a natural performer. I put Post in, in that category of like, he... You know, I, I know a bit of his, you know, mu musical persona and, you know, he's he's a funny guy and he does some goofy stuff. But there's a very, very uh, a deep artist in that, in inside of him. I, I just it. hope he stops drinking so much beer. He's, I, I kept telling him, dude, you can't keep going like this. You're 22 years old. Bro. And he started calling me dad. And I'm like, I don't care. You can call me dad. You can call me anything you fucking want. But what happens is, you know, these these guys hit a wave like that and nobody's going to tell them no 
And, you know, he is a really sweet guy. Um, and I, I hope that he has a really long career. Uh, Post Malone hit me up on Twitter and was like, I'm a big fan because I did a kid's show back in the yeah, day and yeah, he's yeah. of the age where he grew up with it. And I was like, Post, it's it's quite mutual, my friend. He's yeah. like, well, then we should definitely grab dinner. Yeah. And did you have dinner with him? Yeah. yeah. Went to dinner with him and his girlfriend. I brought my wife who was like eight months pregnant at yeah. the time. He he drank a copious amount of Bud Lights Bud and Light. couldn't have been lovelier. Yeah, he's a really sweet guy. Yeah. But you know, then you know what I'm saying. Like if you if you know you're an adult, you look you know, I'm a grown ass man, I have a son just a little bit younger than Post Malone, and I'm like, no. Yeah. Hell no. Yeah. This is not okay. You know, like and sometimes I hope I'm thinking he's really drinking water in the Bud Lights, but I'm not sure. It, you never know. Let's see, he might be keeping up appearances with these yeah. tattoos and But but he's really talented and do you ever see him sing um don't think twice when you uh, can get it on YouTube. He, that that's what we, just before he had he didn't have any face tattoos. Uh-uh. It's just him and an acoustic guitar singing "Don't Think Twice," the Bob Dylan song. Really, check it out. It's like that's when I realized what a talent he really is. When I saw that, so you know, as as an actor, we're so fucking powerless over the situation, right? You have power over your performance, and that's really it. Yeah, and. So you, as the director, as the arbiter of all decisions, have you ever sat in the edit and felt in the pit of your stomach like it's not working? Yeah, for sure. Really? Oh my God! I mean, my, I mean, my experience editing is is always that. Like mm. you know, when um, when you the, the first movie I ever did was called Very Bad Things. When I saw the editors' assembly, meaning when we finished shooting, you know, the editors are trying to keep up and they put the whole movie together, and you go in and you sit down for the first time and you see a very slopped together presentation of your film, yes. the whole film, and usually it's like four hours long. I watched. Three and a half hours of very bad things. What wasn't done was in Hollywood. Got in the elevator, went downstairs, went outside in the patio, and threw up in these bushes. <laughs> Literally threw up. Uh. Threw, puked, and was trembling. And Dan Labenthal, the editor, very talented editor, came down, found me, put his arms around me, said, "It's gonna be okay. This is how it always is." Yeah. And literally, the process of editing. Editing is by far the most important and powerful part of, besides writing the script, and I would argue that even editing is, is more is more influential than writing, but maybe not, I don't know. Editing is everything. Mm. And the experience I always have on every single film is you move from absolute chaos, confusion, visual and narrative nonsense, and you, you slowly, inch by inch, start to carve something that makes sense out of it. And, the, and it never, it, 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 it always shocks me that it works. Mm. You know, it always shocks me that suddenly after months of struggling, it's like a Rubik's Cube of trying to figure out the rhythms and getting the music and getting the visual effects and getting them, sometimes the micro edits, the, you know, they call it frame fucking, but it really matters. Just, you know, a, a, a hair of a second longer on you and a, a you know, millimeter longer on him. Suddenly it starts to click and it starts to feel magical. But it, it always, always, always feels horrible for a long time. Sometimes it never works. A scene might never work. And, and what then, do you do then you get rid of it. And you figure out a way around it. It's a problem and you get around it. Mm. And you find that like 
there are very few, you know, at least in my opinion, you know, I, I, I love all of my movies. I'm proud of all my movies. I fall in love with all of them. And, you know, that's a filmmaker's job, like a parent's job. You have to love your kids. I don't care if a critic rips my movie apart. Fuck him. I like my movie. Yeah. You know, and and I, I def, you know, and I, I really feel that way. And I found that, like, if something's just not working, lose it. Yeah. Or reinvent it or reshoot it. But there's always a way around a problem. Do you, for those, uh, inevitably, and uh, anyone who has a long career, for the ones that don't quite live up to the expectation, how quickly do you, I don't even want to say mourn it, but do you let it affect you or is it just like next day right back to work? Next day right back to work. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like um, part of part of the responsibility of, you know, a good working artist in, in you know in, in whether it's an actor a writer a director a painter a novelist playwright it's like if you're not if you're not creatively hungry and creatively engaged and full of creative drive meaning you know i always know what else i'm interested in right now i have four or five things you know something mm. i'm doing i have two things i want to do and i'm open you know to anything if there's a if i if, if i'm suffering from anything now it's like like all of us we just have access to too much stimulation you right. can't go online and read one article straight through anymore without getting 75 cues to 75 sub articles and they some and so it's like you know the amount of stimulation that i get now is as a storyteller is almost overwhelming um my i think it's it's it, the challenge now is filtering out so much information locking on to something and sticking with it but i feel like win lose or draw you move forward mm. you know you have a tremendous success you move forward you have a flop you move forward you have a mediocre response you move forward um and and that's the responsibility of of the artist you know you've got to keep you've got to stay curious you've got to stay hungry and you've got to keep your passion burning do you find that like i heard todd phillips say that goodwill in this business is perishable, which was why he made Joker. Because he said, listen, I'd made a billion dollars for Warner Brothers, but it was a few years ago. And I felt like I had, my window was closing on when I would have the opportunity to make the kind of movie I wanted at that budget. Are you, do you sometimes go like six months or a year and go like, I got to get something going because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to fight for it. I want people to, you know, always be on top of mind that like Pete Berg's the dude. Yeah, I mean, I think like, I've always have things going, you know, mm. so I started this company. We have a commercial production company. We have an advertising agency. We have an unscripted division. We have a scripted division. And between that, I've tried to create uh, an, uh, an environment where there's always something, you know, for me to do, whether yeah. it's, um, you know, uh, a Netflix series I'm getting ready to do on the Sackler family, on the, the history of um, OxyContin, um, to Spencer Confidential, to a couple of Super Bowl commercials, to a documentary on Rihanna. There's always stuff going on. Got it. And my my strategy, like, you know, what Todd said is interesting. That's a little more th thought out than perhaps I would I would be capable of doing. I don't I don't think in terms of I've got to do this specific kind of thing if I want to do this. I think more in terms of I just want to. I just want to keep 
the activity high and I want to stay passionately connected. And I feel that that creates a constant feeling of relevance for me. I feel relevant. I feel like I'm engaged, creatively engaged in my work. And I feel like the opportunities keep coming. I never know where they're going to come and exactly what they're going to be. But um, I feel the key is to just to just keep working. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, it's not so much like I need to do this if I want to get my money out of Warner Brothers. Yeah, you're you not know? calculating I, like I, that. No, that's a very calculated strategy, and it clearly paid off for them. But I don't calculate quite as much as that. So when you're doing something like Lone Survivor, <laughs> and it's this true story at the highest level. I'll, I'll tell you, though. Let me interrupt myself. Please. The one fucking time I tried to do that was with Battleship. Because Universal, <laughs> Universal told me the only we were going to make Lone Survivor. Yeah. We're all set to go. And Mark Schmugger came to me and said, I need you to do a film called Battleship first. And if you do it, we'll let you do Lone Survivor. And if you don't, we won't. It was a quid pro quo. And I did Battleship only so I could do Lone Survivor. That was a strategy. And Battleship was, came as close to killing my career <laughs> as anything. <laughs> Although I still stand by Battleship and I love Battleship. Like I said, I love all my kids. But the one time I actually tried was to protect Lone Survivor I made Battleship. Not just because we're here and I know you box. I fucks with Battleship. Huh? I fucks with Battleship. I appreciate that. It is pretty fun. I agree. And like that, you know, we got ravished and yeah. It's it almost like if you're going to have something that doesn't quite connect like that, do you want it to happen in spectacular? Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. We'll, we'll put it this way. You want it to happen with Battleship, <laughs> sure. with like UFOs and Rihanna and million dollar effects budgets and the studio just saying, because the studio was so desperate to have their own Transformers, right? Sure. So they wanted a Transformers and Hasbro... Transformers is a Hasbro project, and they thought Hasbro knew had the secret sauce. So they grabbed Battleship, and they were going to, and they came to me and they're like, "Can you do it?" And I had just done Hancock, and Hancock worked well, and I, mm. you know that was a hit. And I'm like, I guess, but I, I'm doing Lone Survivor, and they're like, "No, no, you've got to do, you've got to do." Battleship. I'm like, "All right, I'll do Battleship." We hit, we took a big swing, we missed. I'd much rather miss with that than if I had been like, I'm going to make it than with Lone Survivor, for example. Of course. If I had made Lone Survivor and talked to Marco Sattrell and, you know, Mike Murphy and Danny Dietz and Matt Axelson and these families of these, you know, beautiful young men who died. And I'm like, let me tell this story. And I made a piece of shit that bombed. That would have hurt. If yeah. I had made a deeply personal film about my, me and my dad and this and that, and that had bombed. Battleship? Okay. Sure have at it you know like fine that that actually answered the question i was about to ask but to your point like and i'm fascinated by this like you did very your first movie very bad things right and then was the next movie the rundown yes so okay so then that's definitely a step up especially with the level of action and as a director and it's like how do you go from very bad things, which is slightly contained, a little yeah. more traditional filmmaking, to fucking Hancock, where you're like, oh, I now have $100 million computer graphics. Like, It just seems like so much A, pressure, but also like, how do I shoot something I can't even see because yeah. it's computer generated? Well, you know, the thing that I learned very quickly going from very bad things to, 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 um, to the rundown, because the rundown was a big escalation in budget and you know, Dwayne Johnson and big fights. Mm. And I quick, very quickly realized that, like, these, I, I'd never done anything like this. And 
again, Eric Heffron, my first AD, the one that warned me not to blow up Mark Wahlberg, yeah. um, was been with me since day one. He sat me down and he goes, look, Pete, your job isn't to, to execute it so much as it's to tell us what to execute. If you can think it up, we can do it. So I had the imagination to do the rundown. I had the imagination to do Friday Night Lights. I had the imagination to do Hancock. I didn't exactly know how we were going to do it, but I could sit with storyboard artists and previs guys and say, you know, I want a shot where Will Smith comes up and picks up a whale, beached whale, and throws it 300 feet into the ocean, hits a sailboat. Mm. Is that possible? And they'd be like, no problem. All they want is the idea. And right. if you have the idea, which is, you know, what I try to tell, like, you know, we have tons of interns here that, that go to film school, and I'm not, nothing against film school, but I'm like, guys, you're unless you want to be a cameraman or an editor or you know a, a, a journeyman technician in our business, the only thing you really have to have is an, is an imagination. You have to be the um, the creative leader of the of the army. They'll figure out how to do it, and then and it, then it's about choosing the right people, right? Yeah. So. You know, for for Hancock, it was ILM and, you know, the best uh, visual designers in the world who, you know, these guys come down from San Francisco and they're like, they, and you're like, um, could I pick up this building and throw it to Saturn <laughs> and travel with it? And as it's landing on Saturn, some sort of alien creature comes up and eats the building. No problem, Pete. Okay, great. Let's. How would how, just tell us the, the uh, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing, Pete? What kind of monster? What kind of movement is the is the house moving quickly? Is the house moving slowly? Yeah. What do you? Who's throwing that? You answer, and then they and then they can bring it to you. But you don't have to be. Um, you only have to be in control of your imagination. And then you just need money and time. You got to get the money, yeah. right? But um, but that's your job as a as a you know, one of the jobs of, of a filmmaker, and, and they don't teach this, I don't think enough. I don't even know if it's teachable. But I used to say, like, I have to have the ability to walk into a room with, you know, a bunch of executives and tell them a story hmm. and tell them that I want to hmm. make a movie of this story that I've just made up in my head and that I need 120 million of their dollars to do it. I'm going to take their money. I'm going to go off with my little fucking stupid dreams, spin it up, cook it together, and I'm going to give them back something that they're going to make a lot of money on, and they should thank me for it. You have to have that skill, and that's a very hard. That that's something that they that they don't teach, and somewhere along the way, um, I learned how to tell a good story to the people that control the money. But that's, I mean, it, that's like a mix of confidence. And it's also like, I remember I was pitching something once and I was doing like a practice of it. And my buddy who sold a bunch of shit, I was like, you know, and then, and then I'll keep this part a little more open-ended. He's like, no, 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 no open-ended. You have to know everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, look, you don't have to know everything, but if you're going to say you're going to keep, if you're going to go into a pitch and be like, we'll figure this part out, you better know a lot. Like you got to, like you say confidence. Well, confidence comes from the truth. If you know, you know it, mm. right? To go back to that fight with Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, Deontay, Tyson Fury knew he had it. He knew he'd put on 60 pounds of muscle. He knew he had figured out Deontay Wilder's right. He knew how to block it. He knew he had a strategy. He was full of confidence. That was, a, that was 
nine months of training for that particular fight. So my feeling always is like, I'll go into a pitch and I'll appear to be winging it, but I believe in 100% in what I'm trying to sell. I believe in the story, and I'm going to tell you this story from the bottom of my heart with no bullshit. Right. And if and that's when you can win. If you if you go in and you're asking someone, and it doesn't have to be $100 million, it could be a million dollars. It could be you're trying to get $75,000 to shoot a music video. If you don't, if you can't convince me that you really, really got this, I'm going to go to him. It's done. Yeah, there's somebody else going to come in and do it. Have you heard that phrase, we never rise to the level of our expectations, we fall to the level of our training? No, but I like it. Not bad, right? Yeah, I like it. Is there ever, and maybe I'm being idealistic, and I'll only keep you a few more minutes, where when you're on a $100 million film where you're like, you know, this is awesome, but I wouldn't mind being having a you know $2 million budget and, and a quarter of the size of the crew right now. So I, I think about that, you know, and I... I and this might sound like bullshit, right? But I remember the first when I first moved to LA, and I got a job as a PA for a small production company. And I had my first. I used to have to drive stuff around. I was like a runner, so sure. like, take this package and bring it over here. That's all I did. And the first time I ever drove on a studio lot, I drove on to the Universal Studio lot, right? And I drove on. The security let me on, and I drove on to the sound stages and the trailers and the cars and the you know. The, I could see what I thought were movie stars. And I remember this feeling in my stomach of like, this is magic. This yeah. is this is bigger than life. This is really special. Something very profound is happening here. And goosebumps. And I was and I truly now, to this day, if I'm shooting a, a PSA for free, if I'm shooting a Super Bowl commercial, if I'm shooting a documentary, if I'm shooting TV, I won't go onto the set till I feel that. Until, even though if I'm jaded and tired and angry and it's day 92, I will stop before I walk on the set and I'll remember that feeling and what, what it And because of that, it's all the same to me. A $200 million film, a $50,000 PSA on preventing kids from smoking jewels. I don't give a shit. It's like... It's all the same. It's all storytelling. Mm. And, you know, I, I get excited by all of it. Is there something, can you pinpoint one thing that an apostle in your life, someone who you look up to creatively or what have you, where they said, imparted some piece of knowledge for you that you were like, this is the thing that I probably use most? I'll tell you, and it ties into what I said, but one of the, one of the most profound little moments that I, I remember. I mean, I've had, I've been, I've been lucky and I've worked with a lot of very talented people and Michael Mann was a mentor to me for a long time and I learned a lot from him. Um, and, you know, James Mangold got me into directing, taught me how to write a script and John Favreau has been a good friend of mine forever and Michael Bay is a friend of mine and we talk <laughs> about action sequences and, you know, I have a, I, I've gotten a lot from a, a bunch of different people. But I was directing a commercial for Under Armour about four years ago, and it was with Tom Brady and Cam Newton. And it was it was the right before Cam Newton's rookie year, so it was in this, the off season, and it was going to be them meeting for the first time and talking. And so we had Tom on film. Tom, he's throwing the ball, and then we had Cam. We filmed Cam driving up to the practice field, and we literally captured them meeting for the first time, and they're playing catch and they're talking. 
and um, they wanted Cam to ask Tom for advice. And Cam sort of tried, but Tom's like, yeah, I don't really give advice, and I don't, it's not my thing, and they're just playing catch. And it wasn't really going very well, you know? Sure. And, and the Under Armour guys are like, Pete, can you nudge this along? And I'm like, uh, and when I'm like, I'm like, Tom, what would you, could you, what would you give Cam, you know, give Cam some advice? He's like, I don't give advice. He's <laughs> being a jerk, but he was like, I don't give advice. I go, I know, but okay. Suppose you were talking to a younger you. Mm. What might you tell yourself? He goes, I don't, I don't do that either. And I'm like, all right. And I'm kind of looking at the Under Armour guys, and Tom's just like not having anything to do, and it's just going south. I'm like, all right. So I start to walk away, and Tom's like, okay, okay, I'll say one thing. He goes, come here, Cam. He goes, if you ever walk onto a field, whether it's a, a pickup game, it's a practice, it's a preseason game, it's a regular season game, it's a playoff game, or it's a fucking Super Bowl. If you ever walk on that field and you don't feel like you're the luckiest human being alive to have this job and to have this opportunity, get off the field and don't come back on until you feel it. Mm. And I was like, that kind of reminded me of what I just said to you, that if you want to be a working filmmaker and you want to be lucky enough to have this career, you better appreciate it. You better feel the magic in what we get to do or someone's going to come take it from you. Yeah. It's damn good. All right. Hey. Last question. Yeah. Um, it's what I ask everyone on the pod. What are your one or two Pete Berg commandments, truths that you have discovered that you'd want to impress upon someone else? Well, in my gym, we have some quotes that I put up. Okay. One is uh, a Bruce Lee quote, which is, the will to win must be constant. Mm. And I believe that. I believe that um, if you want to be happy, it's a constant effort. If you want to have a better relationship with your family or your children, it's a constant effort. If you want to make money, it's a constant effort. Um, the will to win at whatever it is you want has to be constant. And then um, the other quote we have in our gym, we're Churchill Boxing, named after Winston Churchill. And it says on the wall, uh, we shall never, never, never give up. And I believe that also. Don't give up. My man. <laughs> How do you think Wilder and Fury do in the rematch? There won't be one. Fury's got him figured out. There won't be one. He exercised the option, though, no? I heard that. I don't believe there'll be one. His gear, the costume was pretty heavy, Pete. Yeah, right. <laughs> Who picked the costume? Not only was the costume heavy, his ring walk, he came in like the Goodfellas ring walk. He walked for an hour and a half. Bad. Before, I mean, he'll get destroyed. Not good. Not good. So who's next, Fury Joshua? Yeah, should yeah. be Fury Joshua. I'm just upset that the UK has all the belts. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Was that good or was that good? Right? I don't lie to you guys. I'm I am trying here. I'm trying to exceed expectation and to just blow your auditory minds so you don't even have to say it. You're welcome. This is what Uncle Josh delivers. Great podcast again and again. Sometimes I fuck it up, but for the most part, again. You know what I'm saying? Spencer Confidential out March 6th on Netflix. I loved it, guys. And you will, too. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Pete, for doing the pod. Um, yeah. Bye.